Chapter 33 To those acquainted with me, I may have looked like the same temperamental foreigner who'd come through by the skin of his teeth again, but I knew I couldn't be Otto Loser anymore. There was no exceptional unraveling of that person. It was a longer process. Awake and asleep, my rejections of the man who had woken up in hospital became a gradual but inescapable fact. This wasn't just a slow rejection of who I was. It was a dismantling of the framework that had produced all of his decisions. All I had left after that was hope. Hope was the mainstay of my physical and mental recovery. I thought regularly of Marie and the kids, realizing each time that I could never go back to a situation I'd already squandered. The Otto I knew was all but scrap, and so was his past. I hoped I might atone for his many indiscretions and blunders. It angered me, though, that I still had to struggle with his remains. From one moment to the next, I could fly against all of the decisions that had brought me to this detestable predicament, half-dead in a hospital in England. I'd been conscious for another day or so when the police came to visit. I'd been dreading this and wondered what the officer was thinking as he quietly looked me over. I would have been a miserable sight, thin and pale, with more than a week's growth on my face, hardly able to lift a finger, and rings of pain circling my mouth and eyes. He introduced himself to me as Detective Constable Blazy and took to addressing me in much the same breezy way he might have addressed some casual drinking buddy in a pub. His opening words, We look like we've been through the wars. How's the head? It's always the professionals, I thought, who weave their spell around you, trying to turn you into the kind of person they think you are. The officer's attitude produced an instant reaction in me, a cold mental poise I'd practiced over the years. I noticed a nervousness about him in his shifting eyes, not really wanting to be there. He drew up a chair and draped his jacket over the back of it. It's like a sauna in here, he said, slipping a stained paper bag out of his jacket pocket. I nodded and looked away, suspecting the bag must have some sort of consumable in it. I don't feel I can accept your gift, I said. I have no appetite. I sneered as I said it. I believe Blazy appreciated my sarcasm. I guessed he'd probably been briefed about me. I supposed he would welcome any sign that I was indeed a moody, foreign bastard and a live wire and somebody he should keep his distance from. I'm not surprised after what you've been through, he said. And what have I been through? No one's told you? I shook my head. You've been roughed up, he said leaning forward so he could keep his voice low. Whoever did this to you, we wondered if it might have been because you're not English. He leaned back to examine the effect his words were having on me. I was shocked, of course. Not about the reasons for the attack, whatever they might have been. Perhaps it was too soon for that. My first sense was a rush of relief that it hadn't been some kind of car wreck. I used the relief to cover my nerves. 
I didn't suppose anyone knew who it was who'd left me for dead, but I asked casually. Blazy helped himself to a lump of fudge before answering. He unwrapped his nasty paper bag all too carefully and popped the sticky brown lump into his mouth as he said, I was hoping you might be able to enlighten me. Until just this moment, officer, I replied truthfully. I didn't even know I'd been attacked. The man's shiftiness was showing again, despite his strenuous, almost comical chewing. There's a lot to get through, he pressed on, making a face as if the fudge hadn't been such a good idea after all. Perhaps you're in good enough shape to make a statement. He mentioned this as if it was an afterthought, but I knew it wasn't. A statement about what, I asked. Blazy nodded, still chewing laboriously. I should think we may need to know more about your love life, among other things. I turned my head away. I couldn't look at him anymore. I attempted to laugh, not loudly or repeatedly, just a single stoical breath, exhaled for the hell to come. Chapter 34, Part 1 By the middle of April, there was blossom on the trees. The skies were sparkier. A sweeter flow of air was passing through the village with more bird song in it than ever. There were walkers in the hills, more traffic each day, and plenty of festive garlands in the windows. Barbecues blazed in the late afternoons at the Belfry Inn, with the sounds of fooling and good times echoing over the rooftops. A cheerful energy had worked its spell through just about everyone, and with the various guest rooms on offer, nearly all booked or already occupied, it seemed as if the May Day Fair might turn out to be the grandest bash ever seen thereabouts. Harold Cratchit had never cared for it. Not once did he raise his bloodhound eyes, or bestow even a smile upon the efforts of his excited parishioners. It was said that his gripe was the pagan origin of the whole shebang, and the way it reared its ugly head so close to the passing of Holy Week. Most knew well enough that old Reverend Cratchit was simply sour through and through. The evening before the big day, when preparations were still frenzied in the last minute, Louise Cratchit began to make veiled comments about her husband's depressed state of mind. While she wasn't asking that Harold be forgiven in advance for his disposition, no amount of forgiveness would change that. Louise was hoping to quell the effect he might be having on the rest of the community. Those close to her sympathized with longing looks, especially the marvelous new arrival Teresa Heller. By now, Teresa was in the thick of it, organizing the pony rides, looking after the Morris dancers, as well as her primary concern, the sponge-throwing event. There was a problem with the booth she'd commissioned a carpenter to build out of her own pocket, but Teresa would overcome. Despite a long list of worries, she even found time, along with Rodney Figger, giant as ever, guiding everyone through their storms, to comfort Louise behind her husband's back. On May Day morning, 
Harold Cratchit emerged from his doldrums to stand in the doorway of the church. A carpet of flowers and wreaths cluttered the portico, all the way down the stone steps. He picked his way through them as if they were hot coals under his feet, and set out into the depths of the village in full priestly gowns, so that he might bless the maypole in the early light, and importantly, exercise any evil that may have been drawn to it. The maypole was a tall pine wrapped with many colorful ribbons. The forestry commission had donated the tree, stripped of its bark and wedged into a black plastic pot. It had been placed outside the pub in the middle of the street. Pointing upwards and glinting rusty red at the very top was the spiraled horn of a unicorn fashioned out of copper. Harold blew his nose and squinted warily at the girl. She was stood there with a few other early birds. She smiled at him. He knew it was Anya Heller straight away, but as it hadn't been necessary to speak to this girl so far, he didn't see why he should have to now. Even so, he found Anya's presence a distraction, staring at him with her sly, puckered lips. He wiped his nose with rough sweeps of his handkerchief. In the name of Her Majesty the Queen, her most excellent Archbishop, and all of her bishops, the good vicar was about to call on God's forgiveness, and he didn't like one of the promiscuous young, who wears skull pins and what not, staring him down with that grin of hers. He cleared his throat and spoke as if making a public address. <clears throat> Those of you who wish to take part in this ceremony may do so, he announced, on the condition that they remain silent and join with me in worshipful prayer. Just hearing this loftiness was enough to put Anya off. She turned before he'd come close to finishing. Still listening to his voice fade as she went, she felt she'd seen through his ugly pose. She couldn't understand what it is that leads to that kind of atrophy in the old, but she perceived it as a kind of turning to stone, and considered it mildly offensive, like getting warts. Anya needed to escape before her mother made her do a million stupid things. She decided to trek through the hills until nightfall. It was still on the cold side, but she looked forward to the intensity of her walk across the wind-swept moor, following an old map she'd found in a drawer at the house they were being forced to live in. The crisp air made her cheeks boil, and later she would enjoy the birds and the bubbling of creeks, and maybe the refreshing spray of a waterfall somewhere. Her aim was to get as far as Hound's Tor, out in the most desolate wilderness, where she'd heard there had once been a witch's coven. Long ago, it was said, the witches had gathered all the dogs on the moor to that spot, and had turned them all to granite. As Anya put some distance between herself and the village, a more serious kind of reflection replaced her outrage. It's a terrible thing, she thought, getting old and having to turn into a fossil. She began to think of death as the stone you become. It made her cherish all the more the spasms of pain she could feel on her arms. Each small incision was the living protest she'd made out of her life. The most profound thoughts came to her sensitive mind, on witnessing the flow of blood on her skin before it got sticky. 
It was miserable to think that all that would be left in years to come would be a bunch of scars. In passing, Anya wondered if she could get away with decorating her scars with tattoos. She decided on tattoos of granite dogs to remind herself in future never to grow old. Jamie had adopted a different strategy to avoid his mother telling him to do a million stupid things. He was busy on his mobile, flying a fighter jet over the ocean towards a mountain range. He would soon have to dip below enemy radar, then go to radio silence. There could be no communication whatsoever, even if it was the Generalissimo herself calling, requiring him to abort. It was too late for that. Wing Commander Jamie Heller would soon be engaging the enemy. In a briefing earlier, he'd been told of sightings of a number of helicopter gunships already airborne in the area. Teresa shouted up the stairs, straining because nobody would listen to her. Kids, are you coming down or not? Jamie dropped his aircraft to 10,000 feet in a matter of seconds, dipping between the peaks of a high, rocky valley. It went well for a minute or so, until he was alarmed by the first of many explosions, like dull thuds along a landing. Just as he flung his mobile under his pillow, his mother barged in with her hair wet and her eyes wild. Jamie, are you deaf? Breakfast is on the table. And where's Anya? She's not in her room. Wing Commander Heller had to eject now. He continued the game in his head. He flew up and out, unfurling his duvet, turning it into a parachute as he squirmed along the floor to his mother's painted toenails. Where's Anya? Teresa insisted. I don't know. Ask her. Christ! Unable to stand any kind of insubordination any more, Teresa shook her hair nervously, getting Jamie's pajamas wet. Why have I got to do everything? she ranted. Get dressed and go downstairs. She was leaving his room as she issued this last command. She strongly suspected Anya of doing a runner and would have to go outside to look for her, even though she hadn't finished dressing yet. There was far too much to do. The buckets and sponges Rodney had brought still had to be collected. Someone had to find a secure box to keep all the takings in. As well as everything else, Teresa was meant to be greeting the Morris dancers, arriving in a minibus at nine o'clock sharp. Harold Cratchit had more or less washed his hands of the Maypole, as well as the various rituals that would take place under it, when he spotted the half-frantic, half-dressed Teresa calling for her daughter. She met his droopy eyes with a forced smile. She had a deep, unarticulated respect for anyone dedicated to the cloth. Harold may have been cranky, but in Teresa's view it was a higher order of crankiness. For his part, the good vicar considered his neighbor's disheveled appearance, coming out in a robe and slippers, as something he and his parishioners would have to tolerate from one so recently moved from London. Good morning, Mrs. Heller, he called politely. Lovely day for it. Hello, Vicar. Yes, aren't we lucky? Teresa had turned and was approaching him. It was obvious she wanted help. 
You haven't seen my daughter, have you? Harold Cratchit pursed his lips and shook his head. No, I don't believe I have. He changed his mind when he realized lying wouldn't stop Teresa coming towards him. I did see a girl, fleetingly. It may have been her. She went in that direction. He pointed down the street and was pleased to see Teresa slow down and back away with a great profusion of thanks, nodding and smiling and waving at him. He waved back. Only a moment ago, he added to hurry her along. Anya had nearly made it to the moor when she heard her mother's first shouts echoing through the woods. She wondered briefly if she ought to hide, but realized how cruel that would be. The way her mother was shouting, Anya knew she was capable of calling out a search party if she didn't get a response. Reluctantly, she turned back. Two minutes later, they were trudging home together, a million stupid things and more to do, and Anya questioning the relevance of it all every step of the way. Only Teresa understood how vital the fair was. She may have appeared overstretched and was certainly nagging that her kids didn't help enough, but it was clear that the more Teresa had to do, the more she flourished. These days she looked healthier and felt stronger, never at ease but always resolute and far more attractive. There was also the side issue of Rodney figure. Not that she would have been fooled into admiring someone so bombastic, with such bygone age manners, but Teresa didn't like to hinder his advances and affections either. They seemed to go well with the new life she was leading. By directing her energies so specifically, she felt she'd fused with the village and couldn't help bullying Anya and Jamie into doing something similar rather than disappearing into themselves, as they too often did. Rodney came to the door, knocking rhythmically, forever smooching his way into their lives. Anya knew it was Rodney by the tap-to-tap-tap, and refused to go to the door. To begin with, Teresa wasn't aware she had a mutiny on her hands. She was talking on her phone, and gestured to either of them with signs that meant, Will one of you go and get it? During the short discussion with someone on the St. John's ambulance crew about where it would be best to station their vehicle, Teresa repeatedly mouthed the words, Get the door! Jamie didn't see why he had to do it. He'd been told to draw a big sponge-throwing sign, and he was busy at it. Nobody said anything about having to open doors. He doggedly refused to even look at his mother. Anya simply folded her arms and shook her head. I don't believe this, Teresa thought, buttoning her blouse, squirming into her shoes. I ought to chain them up. It was impossible and spiteful of her children, but she told herself she wouldn't be deterred by their surly behavior today. She asked the caller to hang on, just for a moment, and she went to the door herself. Me again. Rodney blew in, as fastidious as ever in his dress sense fitted out in summer pastels today, tan corduroys and a blue silk jacket, he was balancing a stack of buckets in his hands. The buckets were tipping over his head. A few sponges fell from the top of the stack. Oops. Forgive me for barging in like this, he laughed. 
swerving into the kitchen, doing a dainty forwards and backwards dance step. Teresa rushed after him, trying to catch sponges. Rodney, you didn't have to bring it all here. Together they arranged the buckets on the counter, still laughing about it, while Anya slipped upstairs undetected. I had to pass this way, Rodney explained. The truth is, the old banger's on her last legs. Got to bring her to the garage this morning, or she won't do another mile. How awful, Teresa said, bustling backwards, hardly listening. I've just got someone on the phone. Won't be a second. By all means, Rodney waved her away. He stood over Jamie's shoulder and made a nuisance of himself, ruffling the boy's hair. Why, Jamie, he said, nobody told me you were an artist. Jamie looked up ducking his head, but not in time to avoid having his hair smeared again by Rodney's hand. He pressed on with his felt-tip drawing of a clown getting hit in the face with a wet sponge. Rodney had offered to be Clobber the Clown later on, and was secretly beginning to regret it. "'It's looking damn festive out there,' he said. "'Will you be with your chums?' All Jamie could do was hunch over his drawing even more. What? No chums? The man stepped back to give the boy room. Well, never you mind, he went on, still play-acting, but a different character now, somehow more aggressive. We'll have you fixed up in no time. All Jamie could think was there wouldn't be time to be fixed up or to play games or to have any fun at all. There would always be a million stupid things in the way of that. Sooner or later, though, when no one was looking, he'd slip away and visit Willie, now that Willie was back home from hospital. As soon as Teresa got off the phone, Rodney beamed and backed away to the door. Everything Bristol fashion, he asked. Absolutely. Glad to hear it. Would you like a cup of tea, Teresa said. Rodney clicked his tongue. That's sweet of you, old thing, but there really is no time. She knew he was right. You will be back by midday, she said. He put his hands in the air, palms out, kicking the door open. My dear Teresa, I wouldn't miss it for the world, and my word is my bond, and a promise is a promise. But how are you going to get back without a car? Teresa wanted to know, going after him, stepping outside with him. I've got a lift, Rodney called over his shoulder. Don't you fret, he said. It's all been arranged. Glancing over the hedge, Teresa could hardly see the stray movements of strangers gathering in the street. A police car had driven into the village, and many of the stalls were already up. <laughs>